Our focus this morning will be on verses 20 through 26. I did ask Ethan to read more than that so we could get our context there, kind of remember where we're at, see where Paul is going in this letter. This is a question for young and old. Uh, What have you dreamed about doing with your life? I know that uh, I've even talked to some who are retired that are trying to decide what they're going to do with their life, what purpose and ministry they'll have. And some of you uh, young students, what, what do you want your life to amount to? What would you like to see happen? Is there a specific role in your life that you envision yourself someday fulfilling? What will that depend on? Preparation? Discipline? Focus? Probably you'll need to deny yourself certain privileges. You'll have to spend hours, hours, and more hours right by on in the lab, or in the studio, or in the weight room. Have you ever dreamed about what you might be for the Lord Jesus Christ someday? Have you really meditated on and truly tried to see a God-centered picture of what you might do for the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ? Not for how you could become a famous missionary or speaker or blogger or writer, but how God could be made famous through your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look at your word this morning and we are in desperate need for your Holy Spirit to speak to us. We can read these things over and over again and it it just falls away like water off a duck's back. Lord, it just doesn't sink in so often. And Father, we realize that you have said in your word that these are spiritual things and they can only be discerned when your Spirit gives us insight. So we ask you, we beg of you, Father, Please show us you. Show us yourself. Speak to us this morning. Lead our lives. Convict us. Father, where we need conviction, encourage us. Where we need encouragement and being picked up. Um, Knock us down. Break us, Lord, where we are prideful and hard. But Lord, work, please. In your name we pray. Amen. Me, me, a vessel of honor to God. Paul begins to look here and one of the questions that comes up is are all vessels the same? Verse 20 But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver but also of wood and clay some for honor and some for dishonor. The great house or large house is used as a metaphor here because it would contain a large variety of furniture, tools and utensils. A small modest home would not have had gold and silver vessels, vessels, which Paul describes. It seems that the great house here also represents the church. Now some writers have also suggested that the great great house may be the world in general. Paul's illustration here will work in either case. In this house, this great house, 
were what's called vessels. Vessels were just about any kind of object used in the home. Vessels could have been utensils or tools, even housekeeping equipment. Today, Tupperware bowls, fine china, silver utensils, wooden cutting boards, ceramic pizza stones, Rubbermaid coolers, all these things would fit under the general label of modern day vessels. They have a purpose. They're made of many different things. Some are much more valuable than others. Hebrews 9 verse 21 speaks of the tabernacle where God's people worshipped and it mentioned there all the vessels of the ministry. This describes various temple tools used for sacrifices and offerings. Things like pots, like forks, like plates and bowls made of silver, gold, copper, bronze. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7 uses a word. Here it says that we have the wonderful life-saving message the wonderful life-saving message of the gospel contained in jars of clay or earthen vessels. Paul is talking about weak and common containers here, mere mortal men and women like you and I. Within us is the glorious and valuable message from God, the gospel of salvation, the greatest, greatest treasure on earth. In Romans 9, verse 22 through 23, Paul writes about Vessels prepared for destruction, as well as vessels prepared for glory. Vessels for honor. They're prized. They're special. The Greek word honorable speaks of something valuable or purchased at a high price. Something precious, having dignity and esteem. Honorable vessels were made of gold and silver. They were used to serve meals for honored guests and celebrating special occasions. But even among honorable vessels, gold would have been distinguished as higher value than silver. But then we have the vessels of dishonor. They were the ones that he speaks about of being made of clay and of wood. The image Paul paints is that these were used for ignoble or dishonorable purposes. Remember that they do not have the conveniences that we do. They don't have running water. They don't have garbage disposals. They don't have restrooms, essentially, like we do today. These dishonorable vessels would have been used for carrying out the garbage, the trash, and even human waste. Now the point is not what some of us might conclude. And, and I, as I read this, I thought, well, don't get this idea. I'm satisfied to take out the trash in the kingdom of God. Jesus was a servant to all. He even washed the disciples' feet, which was the lowliest job of the lowest servant in the house. So let me be a dishonorable vessel, but just let me be a vessel. But, but you're missing, missing the point here. That's, that's not the metaphor. Metaphors are illustrations. They have a specific purpose. They have an intended purpose. But every metaphor can be misconstrued or misapplied. In the next few verses, Paul makes it clear, absolutely clear, that everyone who loves Christ should desire to be as valuable, cleansed, and useful as he possibly can be for his master. The honorable vessels, the honorable vessels, brothers and sisters, are ones the master uses for his greatest purposes. And these purposes are very diverse.
Paul's next statement makes this more clear. He says in verse 21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor. To become a vessel for honor, a person must do something. In your notes there, there's some spots, uh, something to something. Well, what I wrote there is do to be. Do to be an honorable vessel. It's a conditional statement Paul makes there. He says, if anyone cleanses himself, if anyone cleanses himself, then he will be a vessel for honor. If you cleanse yourself, you will be this. The Greek word used for cleanse means to cleanse thoroughly, to purge out. One commentator encourages us by saying, but even a common wood bucket or clay pot becomes useful when it is purged and made holy. However, an earlier use of a clay pot for waste, think about this, requires penetrating, scouring, deep cleaning before it would be used to carry out the freshly smoked prime rib for the king's wedding feast. Friends, this is perfect. This analogy is so good. It may be a little awkward in some ways. But picture this. Christ church. In this assembly right here. And in every church that truly loves Christ and His people. You have a wide, wide variety of men and women. Some from very healthy, God-fearing homes. And others from broken, dysfunctional families. Some are quite wealthy. And some have little in worldly goods. Some of us are cheerful and outgoing and recharged by big gatherings of people. And some are more thoughtful and quiet and drawn into one-on-one conversations. Some, some are very mature in their faith in Jesus Christ. They have a deep understanding of His Word and are very faithful to pray. While some are new believers, infants in the faith. They're just starting to understand the basics of the Gospel and the Bible and prayer and worship. Some of us have come to faith in Christ and newness of life without falling into some of the deadly snares that our flesh, the world, and Satan used to tempt men. But several of us have fallen headlong into those cesspools of evil. We even dove into them headfirst in rebellion and self-love. This has resulted in scars and consequences that are very difficult, but not impossible to heal. Remember, do you remember who Paul described as a blasphemer, persecutor, and violently arrogant man? Who was that he he described that way? It was himself. It was his self. But that isn't him writing this letter to Timothy. None of you are who you used to be if you have believed in Jesus Christ in faith and turned to Him as Savior and Lord and turned away from the idol of self. None of you are who you were before Christ. But praise God, in this verse it says, if anyone cleanses himself, he will be a vessel for honor. A promise for anyone. No one falls outside the possibility for anyone. I love his way of describing this. 
If anyone will cleanse himself, he will be an honorable vessel. Now it says to cleanse from the latter. The latter which we need to be cleansed from can be seen both generally and specifically. In general, the latter are the things Paul has written in his two letters. Things like idle talk, false teachers, teaching against God's law, deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons, lies in hypocrisy. Asceticism, or the idea of gaining spiritual credit by forbidding things like marriage and eating certain foods. Old wives' fables, gossip, laziness, obsession with disputes and arguments, useless wranglings, and love of money have all been mentioned by Paul in his letters. Be rid of those, cleanse for those. But specifically, specifically what Paul must have had in mind at this moment is, Timothy, rid yourselves of these filthy false teachers, these vessels for dishonor. Men such as Hymenaeus, Philetus, Alexander, and the gang of false teachers. These men that were sowing division and heresy in the body of Christ. These dishonorable vessels caused spiritual ruin in the church. A catastrophe. And they destroyed the faith of some. They were deadly. In fact, remember, these godly teaching, their godly teaching, excuse me, their godless teaching, spread like cancerous gangrene. The church must be freed from them. Christians, including leaders like Timothy, must cleanse themselves from these infectious men and their deadly teaching. Remove them and stay far away from them, Paul instructs. And so must we. It isn't easy. An infection, like gangrene, which Paul specifically mentions, invades the body quietly and almost imperceptibly at first. Then it quickly takes hold of a small portion of an appendage, perhaps a finger, and then a part of a limb, and then the entire leg or arm. And soon the body is engulfed in deadly infection. If we are to be used by God in the work that brings the greatest honor to Him, if we are to be an honorable vessel, we must be very cautious. We must be very cautious of false teaching and spiritual distraction. And it is everywhere. And it seems to be exploding. In our men's prayer this morning, we talked briefly. One of our brothers mentioned what is the chaos, the catastrophe all around the globe and at every point within our own nation. And catastrophes politically, governmentally, medically, socially, educationally, in the legal system, and men and women within the church of Christ. Catastrophes, divisions, distractions that are pulling men away from the gospel, that are absorbing men's and women's time to where they are pouring themselves into disputes and arguments in the place of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, of studying the word to show themselves approved. Distractions that pull us away. Distractions also, like the Word of Faith movement or the prosperity gospel. Progressive Christianity that affirms sins such as homosexuality, adultery, abortion, and denies the power and inerrancy of God's Word. Legalism. Legalism that requires 
works of man and church traditions to be made right with God. And as Paul wrote in 1 Timothy, if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, beware of these things. Stay far from them, Paul repeats over and over again. And he will repeat it again in this portion of the letter. But now we come to the qualities of the honorable vessel. He is, in verse 21, sanctified and useful for the master. The honorable vessel is sanctified. It means to be set apart for a holy use. He is purified. He is consecrated to God. Again, if you cleanse yourself from the practice of sin and godless belief, you will be set apart for holy use. If you don't, you cannot be. A willingly filthy platter will not be used to serve the king's finest treasure. Secondly, he is useful. That means profitable, easily used. You could call a man who is useful user-friendly in the hands of God. If you remove wicked habits of sin and anti-biblical teaching, you will be readily used by the Father. Now the opposite of being user-friendly in the hands of God is pictured in Psalm 32, verse 8. There the psalmist writes, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like a horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Sanctification, usefulness is all for the master. He mentions the master here. By cleansing our hearts in faithful obedience to God, we will promise, we will have the great privilege of hearing Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. He is our master. We are his slaves. We love him because this great master chose to love us first. Though we are his slaves, we, though we are his slaves and we are pursuing complete obedience to his will, Scriptures tell us we are also His sons and His daughters. Beloved of the Father, we have been granted inheritance for eternity as God's children. Ephesians 1 verse 18, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. You will know that as His children. 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we have been begotten, it says, to an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not, never will fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Such cleansing and character has purpose. Verse 21 goes on to say, the purpose for the honorable vessel is that we are now prepared for good work. God has prepared those who are cleansed from the practice of sin for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.17 tells us that through God's inspired word, the scriptures, we are thoroughly equipped for every good work. What an awesome position to be in. Prepared for every good work. To know you are prepared and thoroughly equipped for whatever God may put you in. 
What an assurance, what an excitement. From an earthly military position, Douglas MacArthur in 1933 said, In no other profession are the penalties for employing untrained personnel so appalling or so irrevocable as in the military. But from the positive side, Lieutenant General Ace Collins declared, It is astounding what well-trained and dedicated soldiers can accomplish in the face of death, fear, physical privation, and an enemy determined to kill them. That's on the military field. From a spiritual warfare perspective, look at what we're up against and what we've been given. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, because of this, therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Take that armor. See that we literally are in a battlefield. That we are in warfare. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshy. But they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into the obedience, into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. This is the warfare that we're involved in, or should be. All this talk about being prepared for good works sometimes raises a question, and that question could be, is the pursuit of good works legitimate if we are under the grace of the gospel. Is it wrong to speak about good works so much? Well, Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It is not only legitimate, it is also exemplified in Acts 9.36. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds which she did. It is not only exemplified, God has prepared the very works we will do. Ephesians 2 verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, God prepared these good works beforehand that we should walk in them. And God has not only prepared these works, but He commands that we are to maintain them. In Titus chapter 3 verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. And then a little later in that same chapter in Titus 3. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. Yes, good works are legitimate. They are necessary. They are an integral part of living for the glory of God. Now having presented to us the role of the honorable vessel, Paul now follows with specific commands. 
And if you want to be an honorable vessel, look at these commands carefully. Specific commands to the honorable vessel. All three of these commands that are coming up are what we have said before, are in the present imperative. Present imperative is just a fancy way for saying they continue. You keep doing them over and over again. In other words, we are to continually keep on fleeing, keep on pursuing, and keep on avoiding. It's not a one-time thing. It's not an occasional. It should be continually in our lives. Flee. Flee also youthful lusts. Flee means to escape from. It's actually the word fugo, and it's where we get the English word fugitive, a runaway. Timothy is in his late 30s, maybe early 40s. That would have put him in the presence or, or in the identification as a youth in church leadership circles. He would have been considered a youth at that time. So Paul is warning Timothy to flee from the temptations common to young men like himself. Now what does this include? Probably the first thing that comes to mind is sexual temptation. And fleeing is exactly what Joseph did in Genesis 39, verse 12. At that point when his master, Potiphar's wife, his wife grabbed Joseph by his clothes and said, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled. He fled and ran outside. Certainly, these temptations are part of youthful lust. But, there's much more that's going on here. Remember what Paul keeps warning Timothy about over and over and over again, at least four, five times through these two letters. He keeps telling him about these arguments, these temptations to get into these word battles, these temptations to, to be distracted by old myths, by genealogies. In light of Paul's repeated warnings, youthful lust likely included impatience towards those who were slow to get it, a lust for a fight with words over meaningless subjects or arguments, arguments that never conclude, even personal ambition for power or prestige. Paul is warning Timothy, don't get off track. Don't let those things pull you away. They will destroy. In place, he says, flee those, but pursue. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. With those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Pursue means to press on. It actually means to persecute. Get after these things, Timothy. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Go for them. All four of these, if you look at these carefully, have the same quality. They are gifts from God. They are freely given gifts from God. We cannot create them. We cannot manifest them on our own. So... How do you pursue something that only can be given to you? Well, because they are God's gift to His elect children, He also enables us to pursue them. We pursue them by living in them, giving thanks for them, and growing in the operation of them through our own lives. Let me get detailed here. Righteousness. Romans 3.24 tells us that we have been justified or we have been made righteous by God's gift of grace through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this, we could go on for hours on this one point. At the cost of His own life, Jesus brought me out of sin. Jesus brought you out of sin. 
He paid the penalty for you. He owns those who believe in Him. Our response to this gift is given by John in 1 John 3, 7. And this is how we live righteousness. It says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Pursue living righteously, living obediently to God's commands. The second one, faith. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a free gift of God. Another gift of God, initiated by Him. So what is our response? 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. We have been given faith, so we live, we walk. That is our mode. That is, that, that is the way we exist, by faith in Jesus Christ. And not only when it's smooth sailing, but perhaps if you're in Kiev, Ukraine, and everything you own has been bombed to oblivion, or if you're in Syria, and an earthquake has come, and you've lost everything, including most of your family, even when it is very, very difficult. 1 Peter 1, verse 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved, by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Righteousness, faith, love. 1 John 4.10 And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, a gift from God, initiated by Him. Yet, we are commanded to do this very thing that God has given to us. John 15, verse 12. Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. First John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. It comes from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. But he who does not love does not know God. And the fourth one, peace. John 14, 27. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Peace, the fourth gift here that God has given which we are also commanded to pursue. Psalm 34 said it specifically. He said, seek peace and pursue it. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all people. 1 Peter 3, 11 quotes Psalm 34 saying, let him seek peace and pursue it. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. But, pursue these things, but not alone. Not alone. I love the phrase that is in here. Friday night, down in Old Town, we met a fellow that some of our guys had met before by the name of Andy. And he has a roving art gallery that he posts up on the wall down there in different places and sells some of his stuff to anyone who will come by. He's, he's kind of a, a homeless type of guy, but 
very, very interesting, very cordial to talk with. And after a while, he shared with us his life story. And that life story was full of violence, neglect, abuse, loneliness. And yet he seemed to sense that God was working, maybe even calling him to a new life, to a new way of living. But in that moment, this little phrase in the midst of this beautiful and powerful library of truths sunk home to me. Be glad I do this on Fridays and Saturdays. It makes this mean so much more to me. And we stopped for a moment and I opened up the scriptures and, and you can ask Ethan, his testimony was heartbreaking. And I said, there's something you need to hear, Andy. Scripture says here to pursue these things. But it says to do it with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Look at how this phrase builds meaning. It builds meaning in three phrases. With those. It's not alone. The fellowship of pursuing with others is vital. With those who call on the Lord. This fellowship of others who call on the Lord is even more important. This is a fellowship that comes in the body of Christ. And then it, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. The fellowship of others who confess Christ with a true sincerity. The pure heart Believe me, it is the greatest way to grow in these four gifts of God. Don't be alone. Don't be unknown. Don't try the Lone Ranger route. Too many people have told me, well, as long as as I'm seeking God, it's the same as church if I'm by myself back in my apartment. It isn't. Pursue these things with those who call on God with a pure heart. There we were on the curb across from the industry bar trying to explain to this guy the necessity of walking in fellowship with God's people. I mentioned to him too two little simple illustrations. Is down here by the curb if we started a fire to help keep us warm and the embers were glowing and it was a nice fire and we took one of those little embers and put it here on the side of the street. How long would it continue to glow? Not very long, would it? It needs to be in the warmth of that fire. The same way the scriptures tell us that the enemy of ours is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may may devour. And how does the lion usually find its prey? It finds those stragglers that are back from the herd. Whether it's a herd of zebras or wildebeest or whatever it might be. Those that are straggling back, the enemy can attack. Be with God's people. Pray with God's people. Open your heart up. Let us sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. Let us be humble enough to receive correction and rebuke from each other, knowing that we have the same goal, that we would be honorable vessels for Christ, that we would bring glory to His name. Pursue these, he says, but beloved, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Paul cannot get away from this warning. Avoid these things. For life and ministry in Christ to grow, you must refuse, that word says. You must have nothing to do with. In fact, you must strongly reject foolish 
It's the word moros. It's where we get the word moron. Foolish and ignorant. Uh, some of yours may say untaught, ill-educated, unlearned. Now this doesn't mean that they didn't have a seminary education or they didn't have a master's degree in biblical studies. It means they have rejected truth. They have rejected the teachings of Paul from the Word of God. And they pursued a false doctrine, a false teaching. Throughout Paul's first letter to Timothy, and now in this letter, the theme of these controversies, these arguments and word battles, comes up, as I mentioned, four or five times. Such disputes centered on old wives' fables, genealogies, traditions, and insignificant details that have no end, and they provide no resolution. Paul says, Timothy, these things create strife. They divide the church They overthrow the faith of some. Now, in our last portion here, I ask you this question. What is at least one specific way God might use you as an honorable vessel? There may be, there are, there are many, but one specific way. Paul is going to show us that here. The use of the honorable vessel as slave of the Lord. The use we first see the character of the slave vessel. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. The servant, or, or more accurately translated, the slave of Christ must not quarrel. The word must tells us that this is a necessity. Brothers, this is a necessity that you not quarrel. If you're going to be effectively serving your master, you must not be of the argumentative type. Instead, you must be gentle. You must be a kind man. You must be a kind woman. The NASB translates this quality as kind. And it says here that the challenge is that kindness, this kindness is required in the face of strong conflict. In situations where a word battle is brewing at the office or in the hallway, Or at home. We, especially us men, young and old, are prone to do what? What do you do when these moments of heated tension come up? I'll tell you, I get defensive. Sometimes the volume of my voice raises. I show no patience. I may be aggressive. I may argue. And praise God, these things have changed much in my life. But most of you can understand what I'm saying. This is the tendency for us in moments of confrontation. It's not to be naturally kind. We must do this. This is why Paul insists in it as a command. Too often we think, well, we, we have to defend our intellectual turf. Uh, we need to prove our point. We need to stand for the truth. But Paul says that if you need to prove it or defend it, do it with courage that is displayed in kindness. You see, kindness in a heated situation requires much courage. Be the man. Be the father. Be the mother. Be the servant. Show kindness in the face of adversity. Here's the practical role of the slave vessel in verse 25. 
he must be able to teach. Patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. In the midst of this potentially explosive confrontation, the Lord's slave kindly teaches the untaught disputer the truth. Now this doesn't always work. Let's be honest, it didn't always work for Paul, which is why he wrote about Alexander and Philetus and Hymenaeus and Demas, men mentioned by name as, who have become enemies of Paul and the gospel. But our strategy for the glory of God will be to humbly teach our enemy the truth from God's Word. This requires patience, the Scripture says. Not to just write out a potentially explosive situation, but to endure patiently when things really go bad. In fact, in the ESV it says patiently enduring evil. Not potential evil, but real evil that is happening at that very moment. In the NASB, it translates patient when wronged. Not when the possibility of being wronged may occur, but when you actually are wronged. Even injured is, is the basis of that word. When you are being injured, show patience, teach kindly. Can you do it? Can you do it? Will you do this? I want you to, to take your scriptures now and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2 verse 19. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief suffering wrongfully. But what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. Do you see how Paul piles that on in verse 21? To this you were called to live this way because Christ suffered for you and he left you the example that you should follow his steps. Paul wasn't going to let anyone get away here. Then he speaks of Jesus who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth who when he was reviled he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. I don't want to miss this last verse. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There is always hope. There is the command. And there is our glorious shepherd who will lead us through these paths of difficulty. Now besides the fact that God has commanded us to live this way, is there any other reason besides his command that we should pursue such a strange and abnormal way of living in this world? Yes, there is. Verse 25, middle of it says, If God perhaps will grant them repentance. 
Repentance. God's use of the slave vessel begins with repentance. God may grant them repentance and use you as part of that tool, or use you as a tool. The possibility, Lord willing, is that God may use you as His tool and give repentance to a lost, condemned sinner. We may have the great privilege, the great privilege at the cost of our own reputation, comfort, and even life, to be God's honorable vessel in granting repentance to eternal life to a person otherwise lost to hell. Repentance is God's gift. Acts 5.31 Him God has called to His right hand to be Prince and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 11.17 If therefore God gave them the same gift as He gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Repentance is a gift of God. And just as with the previous gifts God has called us to pursue, so too the man given repentance by God is commanded to respond by repenting. Matthew 4.17, this is the first real public preaching of Jesus. He says, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Why? Verse 25 goes on to say, so that they may know the truth. The truth. John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. John 14, 16, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to heaven. No man comes to the Father, but through me. And then verse 26 in order that they may come to their senses, that they may gain understanding. Understanding. Now, only God, only God can bring a man or a woman back to their senses. Not just spiritually, so to speak, but even in sense of what is reality. Often men tell me, I'm really not religious and I'm not interested. Or, I'm living for right now, not some way off future stuff. Or, I believe in science. Just show me the facts. Well, the cold hard fact is that it is appointed to men to die once. And after that, the judgment of God. Things like eternal life, hell, death, judgment, the devil, sin, murder, lies, salvation, rescue, condemnation. They're not just spiritual words. They are words that describe Reality. I want to give you now three reasons why men have lost their senses. Three reasons. And all three are age-old truths. The first reason has a title you may not be familiar with. It is called the noetic effect of sin. Now hold with me, that's not that bizarre. You'll get it here. The Greek adjective noetikos means intellectual. The noun nous means the mind. Hence the word noetic is the concept of thinking. Our thinking. It's described this way. The noetic effect of sin is the effect of sin on man's intellect. Because of sin, man's ability to think and reason is clouded. The result is an impairment of the intellect that fosters doubt, skepticism, 
and belief concerning the things of God. Sin has done that to our ability to think. The noetic effect of sin. Ligonier Ministries adds, The fall into sin has caused mankind to ignore and deny their Creator. Sin has affected our minds and causes our thinking to become futile apart from Christ. The effect of sin upon our minds is known in theology as the noetic effect of sin. Second reason for man's inability to make true sense of life is God's sovereign blinding. Romans 1.28 reads, And just as they, the people, did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. A depraved mind, depraved simply means broken. That mind cannot function. It cannot make common sense of life and the world around it. It is why, as I've said often, it is why a college professor uh, cannot even acknowledge and seem to understand who is a male and female in their class. And a three-year-old from out of our church body could tell you in an instant who is the man, who is the woman. It is why we flirt with things, with CRISPR technology and other things like that, that are, are devilish, where we're combining human and animal uh, pieces and parts and organs and trying to create these strange things. The mind of man has become broken. We no longer call what is good, good. We call what is good, evil. And we call evil, good. We have had a broken mind. And it was given to us because man would not glorify God nor give Him thanks. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 11 says, And for this reason God will send them strong delusions, that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let me tell you the third reason. The third reason men cannot of themselves make sense of life is because the kingdom of God has an enemy. An enemy bent on destruction. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3 and 4 says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The God of this age, Satan, has blinded. Ephesians 6 verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Just in case, Timothy, the church in Ephesus, and New Hope Bible Church, just in case we did not understand the seriousness of these commands, Paul mentions two very real and terrifying realities in closing this chapter. Verse 26 goes on to say, And escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. It is not popular, it is not politically correct, perhaps, to dwell on these things that Scripture tells us very clearly. We have an enemy, and he does very devious, catastrophic things. Notice the word escape. It it either does not appear or is in italics. In several of your Bibles. This means the word escape is not there. This would be the more direct translation. That they may come to their senses. Out of the snare of the devil. Or from the snare of the devil. The snare of the devil. It's a metaphor isn't it? It's a metaphor actually of a noose trap. 
a noosed trap that is a trick or a strategy of, the, of Satan to blind men to the truth. Being taken captive by the devil, that literally translates as to be taken alive as a prisoner of war. Why? For the purpose of doing Satan's will. Satan's prisoners thinking themselves to be free, thinking themselves to be free and out from underneath the lordship of Christ, are simply captives doing their father, their master, the devil's will. 1 Peter 5.8 said, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may be devour. This is a very sober ending, but it is also on with hope. Our hope is in the sovereign God who will deliver His children. He knows are His. As we saw in the last portion of the Scriptures last week, God knows those who are His. And He will deliver them out of the hand of the enemy. John 6 verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. What an assurance. We are secure in His hand. He goes on to say, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. I will raise Him up at the last day. There is no doubt. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have turned from the idolatry of self. You have turned and repented. Repent means to turn, have a change of mind. Then you are secure in the hands of this God. This morning... If anyone here is considering the excuse, well, I guess I'm just destined to be a dishonorable vessel for dishonorable use, maybe even destruction. There's really nothing I can do. Scripture says emphatically, cleanse yourself. Flee youthful lusts. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. With those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8 says that we are adequately supplied with no excuse. We are adequately equipped, supplied with no excuse. That verse goes on to say, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Look at that, piled upon piled upon piled. All grace, always, all sufficiency, all things, having an abundance for every good work. We are amply supplied and have no excuse. Do not let go of this opportunity. Do not let it escape you. The cost may indeed be great, but it is temporary. The reward of serving the Master and being used as an honorable vessel is far greater and it will never end. It is an eternal reward. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your promises. I thank You for the assurance of these Scriptures. Thank You that, Lord, You you command us, You direct us, You cause us to grow. You 
You bless us with an abundance of all these gifts, Father. Righteousness, faith, peace, love, repentance. And Father, we need your help to pursue them. Please move us, empower us, lead us down this path that we would be an honorable vessel for you. Whether it means giving our life obscurely with no one noticing or whether it means serving those who will never repay, whether it means sharing the gospel to those who may spit in your face, whatever it might be, whether it means being those you would use to see men come to repentance. Lord, call us, use us. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.